Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size, and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep, and shipping is free. Go to trunkclub.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 10th, 2015. On this week's show, the New York Times' Karen Krauss will tell us about her poolside view of Katie Ledecky, the 18-year-old American who just won five gold medals and set three individual world records at the Swimming World Championships in Russia. We'll also talk about Philadelphia Eagles coach Chip Kelly, who's either a mad genius or just mad, and who has been accused by a litany of former Eagles of being a racist. And we'll then be joined by the best player in women's basketball, Elena Deladon, who'll talk about the current state of the WNBA and her path from Yukon to Delaware to the Chicago sky. Joining me in Washington, D.C., where he has returned after posting a 17-14 and 14 record at the <sighs> North American Scrabble Championships in Reno, <sighs> it's Stephen Patsis. <laughs> Author of the books, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the upcoming title, uh, I Hate Myself. Uh, 17 and 14 is not bad. No, it's really bad. Why it's is it bad. so bad? Convince me. Because I blew like seven end games. The other players were trying. Yeah, but the other players weren't as good as I am. Apparently they Apparently were. Apparently they were, or else I wouldn't have gone. You're only as good as your Scrabble record says you are. Yep. Numbers don't lie. Um, but congratulations to your daughter who made it into the playoffs for... Division three, Scrabble? Division three. I was in division two. There were four divisions. She was in division three. Listeners will remember that last year she finished fourth in division <laughs> four. This year, she finished eighth in division three out of 88 players, which was pretty good because she was seated 84th coming into the tournament. So she made these new, we had these newfangled playoffs, the top eight after 21 of the 31 games got to 
move on to quarterfinals. Commissioner Bud Selig is just really trying to bring more Shake attention things up. to up, more attention to, to the game. Yeah, yeah, it worked. The networks jumped all over it. Um, well, congratulations, Terry. That's awesome. Making well, progress every year. It was on Twitch, actually. Um, so the networks did jump all over it. <laughs> this year, Twitch. <laughs> next year, YouTube. I don't know. I don't know what that progression is. Um, with us from New York this week, filling in for Mike Pesca, is Mina Kimes. Mina is a senior writer at ESPN the magazine. She's also an enormous fan of the Seattle Seahawks, which means that she's going to be screaming throughout this podcast to try to draw false start penalties. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Mina. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. The twelfth man is uh, is in New York. She's not a man. That is a very astute observation. Thank you. <laughs> Just testing you. <laughs> you didn't ask me my best play, Josh. What was your best play? My Sorry, favorite that's, word. That's tradition. Well, my daughter, Mina, aren't you interested yeah. to hear what Stefan's best play was? Chloe yeah, I'm played. Waiting. Chloe played Qwerties. Q W E R T Y S. Wow, that is good. What, that is good. What does that mean? It's the look at your look at your typewriter keyboard, Mina. Look at Quir- the top. Qwerties. C-W-E-R-T-Y. And That's not S, a yeah. real word. Yes, it is. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Welcome to the club. Oh. Um, and uh, my favorite word that I played was Zapateo. Z-A-P-A-T-E-O. Zapateo. Hooked it onto a J to make J-O. Awesome. The language of origin is Spanish? Correct. It is a Spanish <laughs> dance. It's probably a lively Spanish dance. Most Spanish dances are lively. <laughs> Thank you, Jacques Bailey. All right. In our uh, bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to feature an interview that I did at this week's City Open Tennis Tournament in D.C. I talked to Irina Falcone, who's a very thoughtful athlete, great tennis player, really smart, really interesting. I think you'll enjoy that conversation if you like tennis or people or the movie (laughs) The Butterfly Effect starring Ashton Kutcher, which comes up in conversation. Uh, To hear that bonus segment and others like it, on Hang Up and Listen, and other Slate shows, including the Gab Fests. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. Two other quick orders of business before we get started. First, I've been meaning to say this for a while. If you're listening to this podcast while you're running, I just want to tell you to run a little bit faster. No particular reason. Just turn it up like for the next hundred <laughs> yards or so. What if you're listening to this podcast while you're swimming? Either way. Does Katie Ledecky listen to Hang Up and Listen while she swims? Probably. That explains the world records. Performance-enhancing podcast. Uh, Number two, there are a lot of different ways to listen to this show. A lot of you either subscribe to the Hang Up and Listen feed or the Slate Daily podcast feed in iTunes. I want to encourage all of you Hang Up diehards, subscribe to that Hang Up and Listen feed in particular because it ensures that you will get the show as soon as it's published so you can get it before your Monday evening run. Or swim. Swim. You'll also get the show as soon as it's published if you subscribe to the Slate Plus podcast feed. I just want to assure you of that. To subscribe to any of those feeds, go to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. I should also mention that we're only one spot ahead of our nemesis, the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast, and the latest iTunes rankings. If you subscribe, we can leave them in our wake and also terrify the fish. It's poor fish. Tell a friend. Tell a friend, scare the fish. Tell a friend not to listen to the Orvis Fly Fishing <laughs> Podcast. Yeah, if they go down or if we go up, it's That's the same fine. Effect. They don't have to listen to us. Just don't listen to them. Over the last week in Kazan, Russia, the United States' Katie Ledecky piled up so many medals and records at the World Swimming Championships that it would take more than one podcast segment introduction to list them all. She became the first swimmer to win the 200, 400, 800, and 1500-meter freestyle in a major event. She ended the competition by setting a world record in the 800, her 10th world record in the last 24 months. The aquatic cognoscenti were most impressed, though, 
by my pronunciation of aquatic cognoscenti, but also by her feet on the third day of the meet when she set a world record in the 1500, then immediately got back in the pool and qualified for the final of the 200. Come on, 29 minutes later. She had plenty of time. <laughs> all right, I shouldn't have said immediately. There to watch it all was Karen Kress of the New York Times, who wrote seven articles about Ledecky in the span of seven days and is now speaking to us by phone from Arizona, which is the sports writing equivalent of the Ledecky 1500-200 double. Karen, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yes, I had an endurance feat, but nothing like what Katie pulled off. So it's quite humbling to have uh, seen what she did. I got exhausted just writing about her feet. So I can't imagine what it was like to actually swim all of that 6,200 meters when it was all said and done. So the one feat that I didn't mention in that intro, Karen, was that she broke her own 1,500-meter world record in the prelims without even trying. Right. That's the craziest thing. And you have to understand the context of this is that by the time the prelims of the 1500 rolled around on um, in the preliminaries, very few people were left in Kazan Arena. It was maybe a quarter full. So there's a bit of a sleepy atmosphere when Katie takes off from the blocks. And immediately she was under world record time, and it always flashes on the scoreboard what the world record time is. And if you're under it, it has minus whatever you're under it. If you're over it, it's plus whatever you're over it. And so these times she keeps flipping 100 after 100, and the times that she's under the world record keep increasing. And I don't speak a word of Russian and yet I could understand that the Russian announcer clearly was on to this. He was seeing that, wait, we might be seeing in this sleepy morning swim something quite remarkable. You could tell by the pitch of his voice it started getting higher and his words started coming faster and faster, almost running together, and the crowd came to life. And so you had this remarkable sight of a crowd of mostly Russians cheering on an American. Um, it's really, you don't see it very often because, of course, we're supposed to be the sworn enemy. Except in Rocky and, Four. Yes. By the time she finished, everyone was on their feet, and it was really so loud. I got goosebumps just watching the whole scene unfold. Just extraordinary. She's 18 years old. I mean, this is incredible. Years old. And, the, and the breadth of her skills seemed to be also what are flooring people, you know, well, again, winning the 200 is, with ease and exactly. winning the 1500 with brilliant ease. How physiologically do her coaches do swimming experts explain what is happening with this young woman? And this is where I wish I had majored in kinesiology in college so I would have a better grasp of this. But the U.S. national team director, Frank Bush, did say at one point he doesn't have the figures, but her oxygen-carrying capacity must be so far and above what the normal range is because she seems to be able to transport oxygen more efficiently than the rest of us. You really make a great point. You cannot emphasize enough the range that she showed in doing this 1,500 free, 200 free double. It wasn't just that she did these swims 29 minutes apart. Later in the meet, Missy Franklin would do two swims 14 minutes apart. 
which is extraordinary as well. But it's the fact that she went up against people with the most endurance in the sport in the 1500 freestyle, people who actually also swim one hour and two hour races in the ocean and are among the world best that way. And then got up 29 minutes later and raced in a field against people who are world class in the 50 freestyle and the 100 freestyle as well. So she's racing against people with the most endurance and then racing against people with the most fast twitch muscles. So for her to bridge that distance to me is quite remarkable. So in 2012, when Yi Shi Wen, the um, 16-year-old Chinese woman, mm-hmm. won in such dominant fashion in the London Games, an American, John Leonard, who is the executive director of the World Swimming Coaches Association, said, and he was one of a kind of chorus of voices saying similar things, said, anytime someone has looked like superwoman in the history of our sport, they have later been found guilty of doping. So why do you think that was said about Yi Shi Wen, but it hasn't been said about Katie Ledecky? It's a great point, and I, we probably have to preface any remarkable achievement in sports these days by saying everything comes under a cloud, because if there's one cheater in the sport, it taints everyone's performance. But here's the difference that I would... Um, put out there in terms of um, the Chinese individual medley swimmer and Katie. Both of them were teenagers in 2012 when they did these remarkable times. Since then, Katie has gone on to put up the five best times all time in the 1500, the six fastest times in history in the 800. She has put up six of the seven fastest times in the 400. So essentially she has backed up that amazing performance in London with a consistent record of excellence in the ensuing years. Yui Xuan, on the other hand, has done nothing. It was as if she had, she was a meteor going, you know, just across the sky. She had this one Amazing swim in the 400 IM, 428.4. Do you know what she did in Kazan last week? A 436. So she is eight seconds slower. She has not done another top 10 all-time performance in that race since that event in London. Well, I mean, a cynic would argue that, well, maybe there's just a more sophisticated, longer-term program for ensuring consistent performances. Um, I mean, and, I'm, and I'm not suggesting in any way that that's what's happening with Katie Ledecky, but I think one of the conversations that seems to be happening in, in some quarters of the media is that we should be just a little bit in a circumspect. Right. Not, and- not distrustful, but we should be aware that this has happened before. I actually wrote a story at the beginning of the week from Kazan with this very premise that she's the male equivalent, Sun Yang, who also was swimming everything from the 200 to the 500, and though interestingly did not show up for the men's 1500 final um, yesterday when he was the defending champion, had served a doping suspension last year. So... Even if she is clean, you cannot 
fault anyone for raising these questions. Right. And let's also be clear that China has had a history of and doping violations. And I think that's where, you know, that's where the comparison sort and of starts to fall. And that's what I was also going to point out is that there are two countries in particular in the sport of swimming, right. China and Russia, who have had such a spate of doping positive tests that it does lead people to wonder whether there's some kind of systematic doping going on. And there have been a few cases in America, let's not um, misunderstand, we're not um, above this, but it's been far and few between in America where there have been just clusters of um, positive drug tests in Russia and China that have made people naturally suspicious of any performance that is extraordinary um, from athletes from those countries who have this one extraordinary performance and then are not able to back it up, that is where the suspicion grows stronger. Well, this is kind of relevant, I think. Um, You know, Karen, one of the stories I've been really interested in is Missy Franklin going pro and, you know, having not... Uh, gone pro before the 2012 Olympics, you know, she retained her amateur status and went on to swim in college and obviously left a significant amount of money on the table. Uh, so I was wondering, you know, how much money she left on the table and whether that decision might impact swimmers going forward like Ledecky. She left millions of dollars on the table. And I'm so glad you brought up Missy, because she's just such a great example, like Katie, of another person who is just not driven by dollar signs and, you know, is not in the sport to become a millionaire, that she really valued that she could use the sport to get a college scholarship and get a top-rate education. And in fact, um, after her sophomore year at Cal, she was named the Scholar Athlete of the Year. She's carrying a 3.6 GPA at Cal. And when you think that she is competing against students who are full-time students, who are studying many, many hours a day, whereas she's juggling five hours of swimming-related training and her studies, it's really quite a remarkable feat. And she spoke about this a couple months ago when um, I met with her in Denver and said of all the things she's achieved, that award, that academic award, is one of the things she's most proud of because, as she said, I get a lot of attention and acclaim for the things I do in the pool. No one is clapping for me or um, writing about me when I pull out an A on a midterm in organic chemistry, but that means as much to me in terms of my development as anything I do in the water. I wanted to ask one last question, which is um, Ledecky's best event, the one that where she laps the field literally as the 1500, um, which is not in the Olympics for women. Is that just pure sexism? Is that the only reason why it's not? Well, that's how it started out, certainly. There was this idea that, oh, women are delicate flowers, and if we force them to swim 30 laps, we, you know, they may, um, we may have to Their uteruses pull them fall out of the <laughs> pool because they will be so completely exhausted. So that is definitely how it started. 
But now, obviously, people like Katie are showing that they're perfectly capable of completing this distance. So now the problem is less about sexism or um, gender inequity than it is just the simple logistics of swimming having so many events on the Olympic program. And the Olympics have become so big that the Olympic officials are actually looking to pare back the schedule, not add more athletes and more events to the program. And now there's this idea that a 15-minute race is just not good TV. Who is going to sit in front of the TV or in front of their computer and watch live streaming of a 15-minute race? But anyone who was in Kazan Arena during that preliminary race that Katie swam would see that 15 minutes can be very, very exciting when Katie is the one um, in the water swimming. So If only we could clone her, Karen. If only we could clone her. I'm <laughs> sure there are many countries today studying her stroke, trying to figure out what is it that she's doing that we can teach our swimmers so that you know they too can be the amazing Ledecky. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us and we'll add this to your list of impressive <laughs> endurance accomplishments making it through the hang up and listen podcast segment um thank you karen thank you bye-bye it's now time for a word from our sponsor trunk club and we are deep in the heart of the summer i think i've determined scientifically that we're in about the middle of the summer stefan you might mm-hmm. have sensed that just from the amount of stickiness on your person on your clothes you know what you want to be spending this time outside enjoying summer activities like Scrabble, mm-hmm. outdoor Scrabble. The outdoor Scrabble circuit is hot this time of year. If you need the clothes for that, if you don't want to be stuck inside a mall, you need to get Trunk Club. They've taken the sh- hassle out of shopping. They ship you a trunk of clothes that fits perfectly, makes you look like a million bucks. They give you a personal stylist. I talked to my stylist on the phone. That's a something that I desperately need, given the uh, typical state of my attire. I'm trying not to laugh. Go ahead. Failed at, at your attempt not to laugh. But this is a service that I need, and so many mm-hmm. other people do need. Don't um, disagree. The, the stylist will speak to you, figure out what you like, figure out what'll fit you. They send you the clothes, and then you pick out what you like, and just that trunk full of hand-picked clothes arrives at your door. Keep what you want, send back what you don't, and you only pay for the clothes you keep. There's no subscription, no hidden charges, just great clothes picked out by your personal stylist. Right now, that stylist service, the one that I so desperately need, the one that made Stefan laugh, it's completely free. Get started at trunkclub.com slash hangup. That's trunkclub.com slash hangup. Get your summer clothes, get all the clothes that you need for all seasons at that URL. That's trunkclub.com slash hangup. The NFL's first preseason game last night took place somewhere and featured a team playing another different team. But instead of talking about that result, which I'm sure is fascinating, let's examine what's been going on in Philadelphia, where former Eagle Brandon Boykin recently told a reporter that Philadelphia head coach Chip Kelly is uncomfortable around grown men of our culture, adding he can't relate and that makes him uncomfortable. He likes total control of everything and he doesn't like to be uncomfortable. Players excel when you let them naturally be who they are. And in my experience, that hasn't been important to him. But you guys have heard this before me. 
when he said, uh, you guys have heard this before me, he was referring to LaShawn McCoy, running back traded in the offseason from Philly to Buffalo, who said that Kelly, uh, a little bit more <laughs> explicitly than Boykin did, got rid of all the good players, especially all the good black players. Former Eagles offensive lineman Trey Thomas said earlier this year that some players on the team saw a hint of racism in Kelly's many personnel moves, which include offloading star players McCoy and Deshaun Jackson and the decision to keep white wide receiver Riley Cooper on the roster after he was caught on camera shouting a racial slur at a Kenny Chesney concert. Mina, I don't think we uh, know Chip Kelly well enough personally to know what lies inside his heart, although I should only speak for myself here. (laughs) But we do know that he is kind of of a type in terms of NFL coaching. Seems to want things his way, and he controls all the personnel moves in Philly. So he wants the players that he wants, and he wants them to do what he wants at all times. So is there anything different about him, or is he just kind of one of a breed? Right. Well, I think, I mean, I've seen some people saying, oh, we shouldn't even be having this conversation because there's no evidence or it's so outrageous. But, you know, you've named quite a few players, and sometimes when there's smoke, there's fire. So I think it's worth addressing their claims. Um, That said, it's obviously not a clear-cut scenario. They're not citing specific statements he's made. And in terms of the fact that he's cut several Black Star players, well, you know, this sounds a little bit like the I have black friends or defense, but he has also retained many stars and added players, uh, DeMarco Murray, Byron Maxwell, and free agency. So I think that that sort of does counterfute the criticisms in some way. Well, if you're an NFL coach, you're going to have a lot of black players no matter what. I mean, if the roster was entirely white, then that would certainly be a suspicious uh, happening. Right. And I think um, there is also a credible counterargument that, as you were kind of saying, it's his style. You know, it might be less about um, any particular bias and more about quirkiness or a preference for extreme control or sort of the natural effect of extreme roster churn. Well, all of those things apply to so many NFL coaches. Uh, uh, Kelly sounds to me just like another socially awkward, all business, no bullshit, playbook obsessed, workaholic who treats players like widgets, who doesn't believe that an NFL practice field is a place for any sort of levity or fun. Um, he's the archetype of, 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 of NFL coaches, the old, the old model of the, the screaming tyrant. Um, I wrote about these guys, the young ones, particularly who are emulating some of their, their, uh, their mentors for Sports Illustrated a few years ago. And this myth of the coach still pervades in football and not just in the NFL, obviously. And Kelly came from college where coaches do have this sort of ultimate control over the roster. At the same time, you know, there are white, open-minded, easier going coaches like Pete Carroll, like Rex Ryan. And so so it's not the dominant, totally dominant culture in the NFL. And Kelly has shown signs that he's a progressive thinker anyway. You know, he brought in professors. The Wall Street Journal had a great piece about how he brings in professors 
to the team to talk to him and to the coaching staff. One of the guys he brought in is this guy Anders Ericsson, who's an expert on expertise. Um, he's the 10 years or 10,000 hours uh, guy. He came up with this theory that it takes 10,000 hours to, to become an expert in something. So he's clearly not a close-minded person. Um, but at the same time, he just strikes me as well, he, somebody who doesn't get, he doesn't know how to behave around humans. He kind of, he kind of sees players as a tool for his own self-actualization, right? Sure. Um, and he is different from other NFL coaches in one regard, which is that he tests his players in this kind of sports science nutrition way, measuring their urine output, not not personally, I don't think, but looking at how hydrated they are, the Eagles blend personalized drinks for each player. And you can see that in one regard as we just want to maximize each player's individual performance. In another regard, as a player, Mina, I think you might see it as kind of terrifying. It's like I'm being measured. They're like calipers being, you know, pinched on me in every place. And presumably, if my data points aren't where the coach wants them to be, I'll be replaced by someone whose data points are better. It's Correct. Not, it's, not, yeah. it's not a very, like, touchy-feely. I mean, you're being touched and felt by calipers, but not by emotions. <laughs> we spend so much time talking about what a genius coach he is or the sort of, oh, he's, he's so progressive and he's doing things that other coaches haven't thought of. But if he's creating a culture where players aren't uncomfortable or where independent voices aren't valued at all, is he really a genius coach? We're not talking about his emotional intelligence. He's a backward coach if he's doing all of those things. And I mean, I think, players you know, will grow to resent that as a clearly former players did resent that. And I think that's the connective tissue here with the comments right. from LaShawn McCoy and others. You know, they sure they got dumped. These are disgruntled former employees who felt like they were treated badly. And whether or not race is the actual reason that or an underlying reason for their dismissal or played any role in their dismissal, we really don't know. But what we do know is that Chip Kelly has done things to alienate players. And I'm sure that players who are on that roster right now, I guarantee you that many of them believe that this is not a great work environment for all of these reasons. And this guy is kind of nuts. Um, Kent Babb had a profile in the Washington Post. And I think the most telling quote in there, I mean, the urine sample thing is insane to me. I mean, where's the Players Association on that? Um, the, the former player of Kelly says there's plenty of weirdos in the NFL. He's just a different kind of weirdo. I think also... You know, we're, there's no incontrovertible evidence of racism, but actually, you know, Jason Whitlock made a great point in his column, which is that only six of Chip's mm -hmm. assistant coaches are black and only one of them has a position of authority. And he looked at the other 31 coaching staffs and found that was an outlier. So yeah. I think that's a huge problem in the NFL. And if we're looking at a team where it's even worse than usual, mm -hmm. that's something worth talking about. And some of that needs to fall on ownership, Jeff Lurie and the ownership and management of the Philadelphia Eagles. You cannot allow a head coach, if you give him that kind of authority, to create that kind of a staff. I, I wonder if he's in some ways a victim of his own success because, Mina, you mentioned that a lot of this is just kind of the inevitable, natural roster churn that happens in the NFL, especially when a new coach takes over and wants to implement a system like Kelly's is that's not the normal NFL system. On the other hand, he came in and immediately transformed the Eagles from a 4-12 and team to one that's won 10 games in each of the first 
two seasons. And so you can look at it one of two ways. You can look at it as, you know, he is changing the roster because that's what you do when you take over. But on the other hand, he's kind of tearing apart a team that is successful of his own making, which just seems a little bit odd. And he seems like one of these coaches. Just imagine if Bill Belichick behaved the way that Bill Belichick did, but without ever winning a championship or even making it to a championship game. It seems like a lot of this is coming from a place of feeling like it's unearned. Well, right. Because everything that Belichick mm-hmm. does, I mean, he's as much of a jerk or more, you know, but he just gets the benefit of the doubt because he just wins all Right. That. So all of Belichick's protégés, the Manginis and the Josh McDaniels. Yeah, exactly. They go and they behave the way Belichick behaves and they get fired. I mean, Kelly, I think, has gained some cover because he came from college um, and he was successful in college. And look, what's college about? College is about churn. Um, Players come in and players go out. And it kind of looks like he's treating the Philadelphia Eagles like he would a college team. Well, Mina, there's no way that you can sign Tim Tebow at this point in Tebow's (laughs) career without being a bit high on your own supply, right? I mean, and just all of the different moves that he's made, getting rid of Nick Foles and bringing in Sam Bradford, all the other ones that we mentioned with Deshaun Jackson and the offensive linemen, there is a certain kind of showy self-aggrandizement there. And the Tebow thing, more than anything else, it's like if, if you prove that you can make Tebow into a legitimate NFL player, that's like kind of grand grandmaster level of NFL coaching. Yeah, I mean, this year is going to be such a crazy, prove-it, experimental, petri-dish year for this team. And you question, if if he fails, how much rope does he have left after this year, um, you know, having made such bold moves? Well, typically NFL coaches who are given a lot of rope hang themselves with it if they don't succeed. <laughs> so that we'll find out at the end of the year. And last thought, just back to the racism angle, um, I think that they're – is a kind of distaste from some people in imputing racism. Like there was the Bill Roden book, $40 million Slaves. The title, I think, can come off as being offensive. How could you, you know, how could people making that amount of money feel like slaves or feel like they've been, uh, you know, treated unfairly? But what's clear from these Eagles players is that those feelings still exist no matter how much you're paid and the people want to be treated right and treated fairly and that Mm -hmm. given the history of the world and also of sports that you know if you're black and the coach is white and the owner is white and the commissioner is white and a lot of the fans you know most of the fans are white then those are the feelings that are going to be dredged up totally and this could be pushback against what black or white is an incredibly patriarchal system Um, whether you're a black or white player, because the system is run by white people. And the power dynamic between coaches and players is already so lopsided and players already lack such autonomy in the NFL. If you're having a a coach who amplifies that times a thousand, I mean, can we hardly be surprised that players are feeling this way? Yeah, that's a great point. Kelly seems to have come into the NFL and perceived the problem to be that the coach doesn't have enough authority. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll be back to the show in a second. But first, here is what's happening elsewhere in the Panoply Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. 
Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But, you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at TabletMag.com. With the WNBA regular season about two-thirds done, the Chicago Sky are 14-9 and nine in third place in the Eastern Conference and in position to make it back to the playoffs where they made it to the WNBA Finals in 2014, losing to the Phoenix Mercury. The Sky are led this year as they were last year by Elena Deladon, who's averaging a league-leading 24 points per game to go along with nine rebounds and a crazy 96% from the free throw line. That's 164 for 172. Deladon was the leading vote-getter for this year's WNBA All-Star Game, and on Sunday she scored 33 points to lead the Sky over Brittany Griner and the Mercury on ESPN in a game that was nevertheless a massive failure because she missed a free throw. Elena, thanks so much for joining us on what must be a very tough day for you, given that you just went six for seven from the free throw line. (laughs) No problem. Glad to be here. I want to start by asking you about your shooting. There was a story in USA Today earlier this year about Kyle Korver, how he has a 20-point checklist for his jump shot with mental reminders like go up strong, engage core, shoulders forward and relaxed. I was wondering if you're as obsessive about your technique and what are the sort of reminders you give yourself to maintain your shooting form? Yeah, I'm actually not nearly that obsessive with it. Um, I feel like if you overthink your shot, that makes me miss. He might be different. But for me, uh, what's most important is just arc and my alignment. So I have to make sure that I get my arm to like a 90-degree angle and from there just lift and flick and So my arc, rotation, and alignment is what's key for me. When did you learn your shooting form, and how long did it take for you to become the kind of shooter that you are now? I learned from pretty much day one. My dad taught me how to shoot. And And your dad played college basketball, right? Yeah, he played at Columbia. And when I was younger, he um, never let me shoot on a 10-foot rim because he didn't want me to shoot with bad form, just trying to throw it up there and get it there. So... I would start on like a seven-foot rim, and then when I got a little taller and stronger, we'd move up and then just keep going from there. So I always tried to shoot with good form, even from a young age. You know, one of the things that's really amazed me about your story is how at a very young age, you, you know, walked away from the game and then came back and dominated. And I think that's something a lot of people wrestle with, which is sort of burnout. And I was wondering, you know, what advice would you give to a younger athlete who's starting to question sort of their love for the game? Yeah, um, for me, just walking away from it is what helped me find the love for it again. So I would just say, you know, walk away from it for a little bit, find some other passion, and if, you know, the love comes back, then get right back into it. But if not, then you know that it wasn't right for you. But definitely try to just get yourself into other extracurricular activities. And I think what Mina's referring to, of course, is your backstory where you were heavily, heavily recruited out of high school. You accepted a scholarship offer to attend the University of Connecticut and play for Gino Ariama, and you left campus after just a couple of days because you were homesick and, and you, you weren't ready, it sounds like. And I think one of the, the things, and I, look, I don't know you, but one of the things that seems, uh, one of the lessons that seems built in there is that, you know, kids play a lot. Elite athletes are 
driven. I mean, you're driven personally, but at the same time, you're on a year-round schedule and that time off seems like it is something that might be helpful for most kids mm-hmm. who are playing at this level. Yeah, it's crucial, especially, I mean, both physically and mentally, you need a little bit of a break here and there. And, you know, through high school and the recruiting process, things can get extremely overwhelming. And I mean, what 18-year-old really knows what they want at that point in time. So it's uh, definitely a tough decision to make. And um, I mean, my advice would be just really think about what means the most to you. And for me, that was family. And um, I should have looked at schools a lot closer at home. So one of the reasons that you cited for wanting to stay close at home was your relationship with your sister, Lizzie, who has cerebral palsy and who's blind and deaf. How are you able to stay in touch with her now, given that you are so far away from home? And what is your relationship like? Um, it's definitely difficult while I'm in Chicago. But what's nice is I don't play overseas in the off season. I live in Delaware in the off season, So I get to be with her half of the year. And, um, you know, while I'm away and I'm in Chicago, I have a picture of her on my phone just to always keep her top of mind. And every day I speak to my mom and dad, see how she's doing, hear about her day. So that's the best way I can be connected with her while being away. You mentioned uh, choosing not to go overseas. Most women's basketball players do go overseas, uh, largely because the financial remuneration is so much better than what most players are making in the uh, WNBA now. Um, you're, you're, you're Diana Taurasi, for instance, one of the best players in the, N- in the WNBA, is not playing in the WNBA this year to preserve mm-hmm. her health a little bit, and she's making a choice. Overseas is more important. Are you making that decision solely based on the family considerations, or is there a part of you that also says, I want to play for a longer time and playing year round is, is not helpful. Um, there's a couple things that things that go into it. Number one, family. Um, number two, I deal with chronic Lyme disease. So, um, I have to rest and have to continue to keep my body as healthy as I can in the off season. And, um, not only that, but I'm just trying to build my brand in the United States. And luckily I've been able to do that. And hopefully, you know, one day girls won't have to go overseas. They'll be able to just build their brand here and play only solely in America. Elena, on that note, you know, Howard <laughs> Begdahl wrote a piece comparing you and Brittany Griner to Magic and Larry Bird. And he pointed out, you know, that their rivalry played a big role in increasing the popularity of the NBA back in the 80s when it was still fledgling. So I was wondering, mm-hmm. how much do you think about your role in growing the league? And how much do you feel sort of that pressure and worry about the success of the league in general? I think, you know, every player in the WNBA has to think about that and think about growing our game and, um, you know, just continuing to make it grow and get better. And the incredible women in the past have paved the way for us to now do the same. So I think it's everybody's responsibility in the league to do that. And um, I take it very seriously. And I hope, you know, like I said earlier, one day that young girls will be able to just stay here and play in the WNBA, and that'll be good enough. So you scored 45 points in a game earlier this year in overtime victory, and SportsCenter tweeted it out. And in response to that, people wrote a lot of really dumb stuff, as people do on the internet. And you showed you had a sense of humor about it. Um, The team put out a video where you read the mean tweets that people uh, wrote. And so I'm going to play a little clip of that here. That doesn't look like a kitchen to me. Oh my goodness. (laughs) People are absurd. (laughs) My God, welcome to 2015. How does he even have a computer? 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. Again, so, what, so Elena, you're asking the right questions there. How does that guy <laughs> have a computer? Um, but yeah. I was just wondering, as far as engaging with people who just are so stupid and troglodytic, <laughs> do you think that yeah. there's kind of a a downside to even? I mean, you showed you had a great sense of humor. That's good. But is there a downside to even acknowledging the kind of worst of the worst of yeah, people out I there? Mean, yeah. Truthfully, I mean, I acknowledge with the great fans every single day on a daily basis. There's, those are the people I'm responding to and those are the people who I feel like, you know, I want to interact with the most. But, you know, there comes a time where you have to call out those people who are just going to sit behind a computer screen and act all big and bad. And I thought it was necessary to do so. And uh, it's always funny when you call them out, their responses. and They're so sorry and so apologetic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to do that every once and again. Elena, I was looking at the tweets trying to see what kind of stuff people were saying to you, and I noticed at least a half a dozen instances of men calling you shorty. Have you ever been tempted to point out the irony of that? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's funny. I haven't even noticed that that much, but uh, hopefully they can figure that one out and how ridiculous that statement is. <laughs> yeah, for those, for those who don't know, Elena is six foot five. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the culture is changing in spite of the troglodytes out there, you know, the keyboard warriors. Um, the culture is changing. I mean, I watched your game on ESPN yesterday afternoon. And then last mm-hmm. night I watched a women's pro soccer game with my daughter um, yeah. on Fox Sports One. I mean, this is markedly different than what we could do 25 or 30 years ago or five, mm-hmm. years, or ago. five years ago. And you seem to be embracing this the way that I think, you know, earlier generations of women soccer players embraced it. Is that is that true? Oh, definitely. I think uh, women's sports in general are headed in the right direction and in a great direction. And, um, you know, even what's happened with women's soccer and the attention that they drew, all of that is just great for all women athletes. So this is a great time. And, um, you know, I think the visibility is starting to grow as well. And that's what's so crucial. Um, you also said in that Vice Sports article that Mina mentioned that, unfortunately, in female sports, it seems like people's favorite athletes are the pretty ones. In men's sports, it's the best players. And you talked about mm-hmm. kind of grappling with the world how it, you know, being how it is versus how you want it to be and thinking about you know, how to use your looks and whether to use them and promoting yourself. How do you think about that that problem in terms of wanting to bring attention, but also not wanting to take away from your athleticism? Yeah. Um, I mean, the biggest thing is I know I'm a role model to young girls, and um, I always want that image to, you know, be clean and be a great role model because that's huge and that's most important. But, um, you know, if a guy or a man decides to watch the game because he thinks one of the players is pretty, I would hope that after watching the game, he'd be talking about the talent and not their beauty. So um, I guess that's my hope. <laughs> well, it, it does seem like it's a calculated effort on your part, too. Your brother, Gene, was quoted in the in, in the Vice story, and, and he's your agent as well, saying her game is a work of art and Elena's six foot five and beautiful. So, mm-hmm. so not only does she appeal to 12, 13-year-old girls, she also appeals to men 30 to 60. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. th- it's not like this is, you know, it's not like you guys are, are not acknowledging or aware of that. <laughs> no, um, we're definitely aware of it. And, um, you know, I think both are great. You know, I love being a woman and I love dressing up and looking pretty. And then I love being fierce and competitive on the court as well. So 
Um, if people are going to acknowledge both of those things when watching me play, then fine. But I definitely would hope that they're talking about, you know, my basketball talent or anything else. Um, Elena, you're winding up the regular season. Playoffs are coming up. At this point in your career, what would you say is kind of the hierarchy of goals? There's obviously the Olympic gold medal. Olympics are coming up. Um, then there would mm-hmm. be a WNBA title. Where do you kind of rank what your goals are for your on-court career? Um, yeah, I think I would just rank them in the time frame that they could happen. So um, first thing would be a WNBA championship, and um, we're looking to do that this season. And then, you know, the Olympics are right around the corner. So next year, um, first I have to, you know, make that team, and then from there do the best I possibly can to help the team win a gold medal if I made that team. Well, they could at least have you on as like a designated free throw shooter for <laughs> for the end of the game. I mean, if nothing yeah, else. Yeah, I wish they had those. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck for the rest of the year. Um, congratulations. And I uh, hope to speak to you again soon. All right. Thanks. Now it is time for After Balls. We did diving last week and swimming this week. So let's honor the only woman to win silver medals in both swimming and diving. But that's not all. 93 years before Katie Ledecky set the record, Back in 1922, Helen Wainwright held the world mark for the 1,500-meter freestyle at 25 minutes and 6 seconds. That's about 9 minutes and 40 seconds slower than Ledecky. But Wainwright does have one thing on our uh, modern swimming hero. Uh, Ledecky won her first Olympic medal, gold medal at 15. When she won the diving silver in 1920, Wainwright was 14. Take that, Ledecky. A few more quick Helen Wainwright facts. She was a great golfer and bowler. She was supposed to be the pick to be the first woman to swim the English Channel, but she pulled a muscle and was replaced by Gertrude Ederly, totally destroying her lifelong dream of being a Trivial Pursuit answer, even though Trivial Pursuit did not exist back then. Mm. But Helen Wainwright, after ball honoree, you have now been redeemed. Congratulations. What order should we do these in, Stefan? You want to go first? You want Mina to go first? Mina can go first. Sure. She's guest. Always let the guest go first. <laughs> All right. Mina, what is your Helen Wainwright? Sure. So, um, you know, in the offseason, we spend a lot of time talking about which quarterback is the best. I'd like to talk about which NFL quarterback I'd most want to be. And that is a player that I am borderline obsessed with named Charlie Whitehurst. If you aren't a football fan, or if you are a football fan, there is a good chance you are not familiar with Whitehurst, who is a perennial backup. He currently plays for the Titans. His nickname is Clipboard Jesus, which is a reference to the fact that he usually appears on camera holding a clipboard, and that he has long, flowing brown hair. If you've never seen him, he looks kind of like a cross between Charles Manson and the four members of Maroon 5 who aren't allowed to speak. (laughs) Charlie has played four years at Clemson, where he was okay, and then nine seasons in the NFL, notably in Seattle, where he was terrible, and San Diego, where he backed up Philip Rivers for four years and never threw a regular season pass. When Titans coach Ken Wisenhut signed him last year, one NFL writer wrote, It looks like Charlie Whitehurst has Jedi mind-tricked another NFL team into giving him several million dollars. Shortly after signing, he lost his jersey number to the Titans punter in an arm wrestling match. (laughs) So there are a couple of reasons why I love him. One is that in a league where there's a cultural and financial imperative to hide any semblance of personality, he appears to be a genuine weirdo. And the longer he plays, or let's be honest, doesn't play, the more he lets his freak flag fly. Here are a few of his tweets. CYD6. Took the thinning cheers to my chest hair and my hotel sink is now clogged. One should steer clear of ranch dressing. My winter slash spring wardrobe transition begins and ends with a chambray shirt. 
umpired a beer league softball game today pro bono. Feels good to give back. <laughs> and uh, this is my favorite from June. Just did some antiquing. If you follow Charlie on Instagram, you learn a lot about him. He always seems to be at cool concerts or meeting and cooking interesting animals or sunbathing off the coast of France, wearing short shorts and a turquoise necklace. He spent last year's minicamp living in a log cabin in the woods, not a J.J. Watt, quote, log cabin, but a real shack with a gun on the wall. I know this because the NFL.com wrote, quote, the thickly bearded Georgia native confirmed he didn't even load the gun, a parallel to his quiet on-field career, which hasn't seen Whitehurst fire a pass since 2011. So mean. <laughs> but here's a question. If you had the option of playing the NFL, would you want to be a Pro Bowl linebacker who gets his brain bashed in every Sunday or a 33-year-old backup quarterback who spends the offseason hiking and wearing fedoras and living his best life? According to SportTrack, Whitehurst has earned $15 million for the last nine years. He started nine games in that time, gone two and seven, and averaged $1.5 million per touchdown. So in my opinion, he doesn't deserve to be shamed. He deserves your admiration, unless he's starting on your team on Sunday, in which case you're screwed. <laughs> Didn't he lead the Seahawks to the playoffs because Matt Hasselbeck was hurt? And yes. That, that, so His one good performance ever, correct. So Mina, a little backstory here, told us, before uh, we recorded the show, that her that her favorite NFL player would be a surprise because it was not a Seahawk. I would I would rank yeah. that like three Pinocchios on uh, yeah okay on a former. Yeah. If anything, I should dislike him honestly because we paid him eight million dollars um, to you know be not, not your good. not your money not to, your money to Mina. go to a, to <laughs> go to a, to go to a log cabin. I think that's money well spent, frankly. It's a counterintuitive <laughs> pick. Uh, Stefan, what is your Helen Wainwright? Frank Gifford died over the weekend, and the obituaries recounted his nimble moves as a New York Giants rusher and receiver in the 50s and 60s, his straight man role in the Monday Night Football booth alongside Howard Cosell and Dandy Don Meredith in the 70s, and his tabloid life alongside Kathy Lee Gifford, Nee Crosby in the 80s and beyond. But to readers, Gifford was also the object of obsession in Frederick Exley's 1968 autobiographical novel about drunkenness and dissolution and breakdown. I read a fan's notes years ago, and I paged through it on Sunday looking for Gifford. There's not as much in it as you might be led to believe. The book doesn't center on Gifford, who's more symbol than character. But Exley's depictions are naturally better than any obituary because they distill the facts and throw back something larger, in this case, the outsized spectral role that athletes sometimes play in our lives. So let's read, starting with this passage where Exley encounters Gifford at a diner at USC where Gifford is a hero, if a modest and almost invisible one, and Gifford's buddies are swooning over him. My eyes on my soup, I listened to this sycophancy, smiling rather bitterly for what seemed an eternity. When I finally did look up, it was he, ambrosial locks and all. He was dressed in blue denims and a terry cloth sweater, and though I saw no evidence of USC stamped anywhere, still I had an overwhelming desire to insult him in some way. How this would be accomplished and with any subtlety, I had no idea. I certainly didn't want to fight with him. I did, however, want to shout, listen, you son of a bitch, life isn't all a goddamn football game. You won't always get the girl. Life is rejection and pain and loss. All those things I so cherishingly cuddled in my self-pitying bosom. I didn't, of course, say any such thing. Instead, Exley sneers at Gifford, who smiled a most ingratiating smile, gave me a most amiable hello, and walked out the door. Exley becomes a Gifford worshiper. 
It was very simple, really. Where I could not, with syntax, give shape to my fantasies, Gifford could, with his superb timing, his great hands, his uncanny faking, give shape to his. It was something more than this. I cheered for him with such inordinate enthusiasm, my yearning became so involved with his desire to escape life's bleak anonymity that after a time he became my alter ego, that part of me which had its being in the competitive world of men. I came, as incredible as this seems to me now, to believe that I was, in some magical way, an actual instrument of his success. Each time I hear the roar of the crowd, it roared in my ears as much for me as him. That roar was not only a promise of my fame, it was unequivocal assurance. After the death of Chuck Bednarik in March, I did an afterball about the hit. The Eagles linebacker leveling Gifford at Yankee Stadium in November 1960, Gifford's head concussed by the frozen turf, his career effectively ended. I talked about how the play had been misreported for decades, but I didn't include Exley's account. Like others, Exley got some details wrong, that Gifford never saw Bednarik, that Bednarik ran into him without breaking his furious stride. But screw the details. In a way, it was beautiful to behold. For what seemed like an eternity, both Gifford and the ball had seemed to float, weightless above the field, as if they were performing for the crowd on the trampoline. About five minutes later, after unsuccessfully trying to revive him, they lifted him onto a stretcher, looking from where we sat, high up in the mezzanine, like a small, broken, blue and silver mannequin, and carried him out of the stadium. Gifford announced after the hit that he was retiring, though he did come back, and he refused to admit that it was because of the hit. Exley teases out of the denial, maybe the saddest, ultimate truth about sports and the athletes who play them. Thus it was that at the end, or at what Gifford and I must have believed the end for him, it gave me some consolation that we were both addicted to something, he to football and I to liquor, capable of destroying us, if not actually in humiliation and loss of pride. For the first time since the beginning, when so many autumns before we had had the common ground of large hopes, we were in our separate ways, coming round to the most terrible knowledge of all, we were dying. And that was the inescapable truth. Though I was sometime in articulating it, in that limp and broken body against the green turf of the stadium, I had had a glimpse of my own mortality. Frederick Exley died in 1992 at age 63. Frank Gifford died on Sunday at 84. We are all dying, except for Charlie Whitehurst. So true. Josh, what's your Helen Wainwright? All right, listen up, kids, especially you, Stefan. Back in my day, you could not look up scores on the internet or even see them on TV unless it was on ESPN at 28 or 58 after the hour. But if the Mets were playing a close game, getting the score every 30 minutes was not good enough. So that's when you called a phone number to get the scores you so desperately needed. Stefan is flailing his arms wildly. Get all the sports news instantly, Josh. Dial (laughs) 976-1313. Uh, Dial at National Sports was the first service in 1980 assigned to everyone's favorite area code, one 900 To get you in that sports phone mood that Stefan has already kind of gotten you in, here is a commercial from the 1980s starring the lovable Yogi Berra. Fifty cents a call to know all the scores. How can you afford not to call? Stefan, did you call this phone number? Yes. 
Did you? But there was a local a one in New York. The one that I sang the jingle from was the New York one, sports phone. And that was just a local call. No, yeah. I'm sure it wasn't a local call. I'm sure your your parents uh, winced at the phone bill every Probably. month. Um, if you're interested, Newsday's Neil Best has a history of sports phone in New York that published a couple weeks ago. According to a 1972 AP story, sports phone was part of a highly sophisticated new system developed by the New York Telephone Company at a cost of about $10 million, and it could handle 198,000 calls an hour. It was supposedly inspired by Macy's Dial Santa Claus program from 1964, which got 2 million calls and tied up Manhattan's phone lines for weeks, because I'm guessing that Santa would just not shut up and get off the damn phone. Come on, Santa, I've got to get the Islanders Bruin score. But even before that Santa line, people used to call the local paper to find out who won and who lost. Pre-sports phone, Stefan, if you go in the news database ProQuest, as one does, and search for the phrase, do not call the New York Times, 147 separate stories come up, all of which fall between 1943 and 1979. 145 of those 147 beg and plead with readers not to call the newsroom to ask for World Series scores so as to prevent impairment of other services in the New York Times offices. All of these stories give out a number set up by the phone company expressly for this purpose. And back before we obsessed over TV ratings as a barometer of a sports health, the Times used to report on how many phone calls this number received, 1,205,347, for example, during the 1954 Dodgers-Yankees World Series, that was an all-time record to that point. So that's 145 of the 147 hits on the phrase, do not call the New York Times. I found one more instance of an ad from 1971 that said, please do not call the New York Times for horse racing results. The Times is not equipped to provide the results of any sports events by telephone. Then there is one more for a non-sports event, one in which the Times did not want readers to jam the phone lines. Do you guys want to guess? what that event was, the only non-sports event that ever led the New York Times to say, do not call the New York Times. Kennedy getting shot? Right, right uh, era. Man on the moon? Not man on the moon. Did they really land on the moon? <laughs> Don't have a television. October 25th, 1962. Please do not call the okay, New York thanks. Times for information about the Cuban crisis. The request is made to avoid impairment of the regular services of the Times. As an example of the problem that such inquiries pose for this newspaper, 15,000 calls were received yesterday in a nine-hour period. And then the Times explains, regular radio news broadcasts are made by the Times every hour on the hour over station WQXR. The radio is a thing that exists. Important special bulletins are broadcast over WQXR as they are received. So, man, 15,000 calls. People must have really been terrified about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Two weeks earlier, the Times reported that the New York Telephone Company received 386,537 calls requesting inning-by-inning scores for the first five World Series games between the Yankees and Giants. In conclusion, baseball used to be popular. The end. This makes me think my my dad doesn't quite know how to use Twitter and for real-time news, so he'll just text me constantly when he wants to updates on sports news. So I'm sort of a real-time sports phone for him. (laughs) Mina Kimes got (laughs) 15,000 texts in in nine hours during the I should really charge him for this. Grantland has a terrific history of sports phone that was published in February by Joe D'Alessio. Sports phone got a lot of calls. It was only a 10-cent call, by the way, in the New York area. 
Okay. So my parents were, were probably not traumatized by my <laughs> overuse of sports phone, mostly used by gamblers, of course. And uh, in 1981, sports phone, 50 million calls in New York. Sort of feel like I took a, an afterball that was rightfully yours. Do you feel like, like I do it was a little snatched bit. out of your I do out of your rotary phone dialing hands? I do, and I, you know what? I also last week I was about to buy a sports phone T-shirt on the great Nomas website. They didn't have it in my size, wow. but I'm going back. I got to get the sports phone T-shirt. I have been looking at your browser get history. Get all the sports news instantly. All right, we love your feedback uh, on what we seven six one three one three. All right, Stefan. All right, Stefan. <laughs> we love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. Get on that Hang Up and Listen feed. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Thank you very much to Mina Kimes for filling in for Mike Pesca this week. Our producer is Who? Mike Bolo. Who? Mike Pesca? I think he was like a sports phone guy. Was it? <laughs> Pesca would have been an excellent voice for sports phone. He can talk fast and he has a New York accent. Let's bring back sports phone with Mike Pesca. Or you can Mike, just rename the show. Mike Pesca is the host of Sports Phone. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember the sports phone phone number and Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Get all the sports news instantly. Dial 976-1313. Get all the sports news instantly. Get all the sports news instantly. Dial 976-1313. Get all the sports news instantly. Dial 976-1313. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.